In 2013, famed British broadcaster and naturalist David Attenborough said, I believe the abominable snowman may be real. It is not impossible that it might exist. If you've walked in the Himalayas, there are these immense rhododendron forests that go on for hundreds of square miles, which could hold the Yeti. If there are some still alive and you walked near their habitat, you can bet that these creatures may be aware of you, but you wouldn't be aware of them. Hello, and welcome to the Mayday Podcast. I'm Luca. And I'm Anna. And today is part one of our two episodes on the abominable snowman, or the Yeti. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today, the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And just some content warnings for this episode. There will be discussions of death and dead bodies, racism and anti-Semitism, including mentions of Nazi science and the Holocaust. Also, just a heads up, later in this episode, we refer to Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury Group as the gays. Luke and I are both queer, and this is said very much as a term of endearment. Please don't cancel us. So today we'll be partaking in Tibetan butter tea, which is known as pocha. So pocha is widely drunk in Tibet and among Sherpa communities in the Himalayas, and it's often been shared with mountaineers and people who um, spend time at high altitudes because it has really high calories, obviously, with all the, the butter that is in it. Um, I don't know if you noticed, Anna, but we are not at high altitudes and do not require additional calories. Like, we're in a tall apartment block. <laughs> it's, just, it's the same, right? <laughs> Incredible justification. Uh, sip, sip. Sip, sip. This um, interesting beverage is usually made with yak butter and fermented pure tea, um, but we don't have pure tea or, and that's pure, not pure. Oh. I definitely would not have thought that. Yeah, I wanted to clarify. That's like the, a type of tea. Um, but we don't have that tea and we don't have yak butter, shockingly. So I used regular butter and just like Melbourne breakfast tea. But it also has salt in it and we do have Himalayan salt. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like close enough. <laughs> I don't want to be culturally insensitive, but I, I dread this beverage. <laughs> I like, I mean, like to be clear, I, I'm, you know, Sure, it's better made by, you know, people that have made it more than once in a blender in their Melbourne kitchen. But. Yes. <laughs> it's supposed to be made, as I mentioned to you off recording, with like a butter churn. And obviously there's like much better ingredients that go into it. And I just made it in our blender. So it's it's not going to be quite right. And unfortunately, I've never had it. So I can't even taste what's wrong. But uh, I think it'll be an experience. This, this is a great point. We're not going to know if this is bad or good. Yeah. So we just need to go into it with an open mind, much like the Yeti. My mind is not open to the Yeti. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to discuss why it shouldn't be very soon. Um, let's take a sip of this drink first. So it's got like a, it's like a foam on top. Mm, from the blending. Mm. I would say it smells pretty good. It smells good. I wonder whether that is the Melbourne breakfast or the butter. <laughs> I think a lot of it's just the butter, to be honest. Like that smells like nice baked buttery goods. Mm, that's fair. All right. All right. You ready? Cheers. Cheers. It's just kind of like really milky tea. Yeah. There's like a little bit of like saltiness there. It's like a little bit though. I don't think I put enough butter in it, to be honest. <laughs> probably a good thing. Yeah. Like I was looking at videos of it online and I think theirs was like a lot thicker than this is. This is pretty, pretty thin. So that's, that's a failure to make pocha, but... Maybe someone can send me a better recipe. This was from some like random American woman online who <laughs> believes that butter tea decreases your chances of getting diabetes. Anna, why did you pick this recipe? <laughs> it was one of the only ones I could find. <laughs> and she seemed so earnest about it. This is making my throat feel funny, so I don't know if I'm going to finish Maybe it. you should stop, yeah. <laughs> so today I want to talk about my preferred crypto, cryptozoology. <laughs> I must be feeling very negative today because I hate that as well. <laughs> so crypto means hidden or secret and cryptozoology is a pseudoscience that focuses on animals known as cryptids. So they're animals whose existence is disputed either because they're mythological or they're supposed to be extinct or they're just unknown. Is there any animal that has gone from being a crypto animal to being like actually an animal like one that's been just found 
Uh, I think like the one that people often reference as proof that some actual cryptids might be real is coelacanths. You know, that fish that was discovered that we previously only knew from fossils and they found one of the fish alive and it was a really big deal. That wasn't a cryptid before, but cryptozoologists often reference that as being like, well, we oh. suddenly found this fish that should have been extinct millions of years ago. What if these other animals could be real? And it should be noted that a lot of cryptids, the ones that are supposedly extinct animals that are still alive, are like really big. Like they're not a fish. They're like the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's something that you can't miss. Yeah. Or it's something like Bigfoot slash the Yeti, which a lot of people posit might be Gigantopithecus or some kind of big ape. But there's also ones like Mothman and stuff, which are just either based on local folklore or they're just entirely like weird sightings that people saw in recent years on the side of the road, like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Unreliable people. Telling unreliable stories. <laughs> Correct. Um, so I actually did want to preface this discussion by saying I obviously don't believe in cryptids. Oh, Anna, no. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry all the cryptid fans who came to this podcast thinking that they'd get... <laughs> But you know what? I'm honestly more excited to explore all of, like, the reasons that it has come about. Like, yeah. Because I, I just find that so much more interesting. I think I think that's fun. And I, I do, like, enjoy cryptozoology just in that I'm very fascinated by it as a phenomenon. I read a lot about it. And I am, like, genuinely interested in a lot of the, like, accounts people give. Because I don't think everyone is just kind of crazy or lying. I do think some people really think that they saw what they saw. But it's just interesting how that comes about. Yeah, it's just a case of, I mean, our brains trick us. Yeah. Um, or we see a real thing that also fulfills a lot of the criteria of a cryptid. Mm. So this episode is about the Yeti. But it's not obviously about trying to prove it's real. It's about the fact that we know it's fake. But then we're exploring how the Yeti story came about. Mm -hmm. This is actually a secret episode within an episode, a crypto episode, if you will, <laughs> about the history of Himalayan mountaineering, which I just really enjoy. And now you have to listen to me talk about it. You're enjoying yourself far too much. I am. <laughs> when I was typing out crypto episode, I was like, <laughs> I am like a comic genius. <laughs> You're like, this is going to drive Luca insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's why I do everything that I do. Yeah, checks out. <laughs> so I'm going to kick this off with some Everest facts, because like, obviously that's basically where all this is set in and around, even if we're talking about other parts of the Himalayas or even just the surrounding like region. It's usually trying to get to Everest that people see footprints or sightings or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Himalayas were surveyed by the British in the 19th century, and the height of Everest was calculated in 1852 by an Indian mathematician named Radhanath Sikdar. So Sikdar said it was about 29,000 feet, so 800, sorry, 8,839 meters, but it was only announced in 1856 when Andrew Waugh, the British Surveyor General of India, confirmed it. And he added an extra two feet because he decided that Sikdar's number of 29,000 was too clean. So he was like, it looks more believable if it's 29,002. Um, I hate that, man. <laughs> I hate everything about that. It was truly a choice. Um, He's like, I, not only do I need to erase this Indian man's achievement, I need to overshadow it by making it taller and also less accurate, likely. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, when we say accurate, like, it was really close to... Like, exactly accurate. So the number was revised in the 50s and a few times since. But the current elevation, as of 2020, is listed as 8,848.86 metres. So that's 29,031 feet. So Sikdar was truly off by 31 feet. Damn. And he just did that with maths. Yeah. I am baffled by yeah. that achievement, to be honest. <laughs> it's incredible. So Everest was referred to as Peak XV, so Peak 15, by the British until war announced its official height and he said it was likely the highest mountain in the world. And at that time, he named it Mount Everest after his predecessor, Sir George Everest, which is how his name was actually pronounced. Oh, so it's not like, because it's tall, it's literally just, huh, interesting, sorry. It's named after dude named Everest. Everest. This actually went against naming conventions at the time. So you'd think the British would name all of the mountains after British people, but they actually didn't. They made a point of naming them um, after local names or variants on local names. So often the spelling was off. But, oh, of course. Yeah, but the attempt was there. So like 
Kanchenchunga is the second highest mountain in the Himalayas, and that's obviously named after a local name. Is that the one we call K2? No. K2 is actually slightly outside of the Himalayas. Oh, that's just the one that's hard to climb. Yeah, yeah. It's also very high, but it's outside of the Himalayan range, but I think it's in Pakistan. Cool. Sorry. I was just like, wait, are we continuing to be racist by not saying the actual name? K2 is the second highest in the world. Kanchenchunga is the second highest in the range. Thank you. That's why I was confused. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, different, different mountains. Wall's excuse for naming Everest after Everest was that he couldn't determine a single dominant local name, partly because both Nepal and Tibet were closed to foreigners at the time, and that's the two sides of, mm-hmm. of Everest. He probably could have tried harder, but like to be fair to him, that's that's fair. It was a little bit difficult. <laughs> Funnily, Everest actually opposed the use of his name because he argued that it could not be properly written in Hindi, but it stuck anyway. Okay, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. While he was in charge, it just wasn't something that would have like really happened. Like, yes, he wasn't, he wasn't looking to get things named after him. Yeah, yeah. But now the most famous mountain in the world is just called his name, but r- pronounced but, wrong. But pronounced wrong and unable to be written in Hindi. Yeah. <laughs> the official Nepali name for Everest is Sagamatha, meaning the head in the great blue sky or goddess of the sky. While the Tibetan name, which was first recorded in 1721, so like well before they were naming it, they just didn't find... Records or information. Yeah. So the Tibetan name is Chamalungma, which means holy mother. Okay, super interesting. So was it pretty well, like, it sounds to me, judging by those names, goddess of the sky and holy mother, Mm. that, like, they were just able to look and be like, yeah, that's the tallest one. Look, a lot of the names in the region had kind of holy or religious meanings. But yeah, like, Everest is particularly high and they were just kind of like, yeah, that one's... That's the big, Very important. The big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just interesting. Yeah. 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 Interesting that like the, the names were already like, you know. Kind of superlative names. Yeah. 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 And also we know that I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but most of the like major climbing attempts were all done in the sort of Western period of climbing because prior to that, first of all, people who live at high altitude aren't thinking, oh, what if I could be higher? <laughs> That would be fun, but also it's sort of sacred, so Mm. they're not going out there trying to climb Everest all the time. Yeah. 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 So major Western climbing attempts begin from about the 1920s onwards and from the Tibetan side prior to World War II and then from the Nepalese side after World War II because Nepal opens up to foreigners Mm. and Tibet closes to foreigners because of everything going on with Tibet and China, which we will talk about a bit later. Mm. With the exception of Mallory and Irvin's disputed possible summit in 1924 before their deaths, which I mentioned to you before we might do an episode on one day because it's interesting. Mm. Um, With that exception, because we can't confirm if they actually got up to the top, the mountain was not actually summited until 1953, and that was by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Like a little bit funny to me that Mallory and Irving were just like... Don't know if they made it and then they died and then they were not found (laughs) until like (laughs) way later. Yeah. And people were like, oh, well, his body was found here. Maybe that means he got to the top and then fell off or, you know, whatever. Like, it's one of those things where people have. I'm sorry. I love love that a lot. What if he just like fell off? Obviously, I know that's like like very much a possibility, but like, it's just very funny to me that he fell off the tallest mountain in the world. Maybe fell down on the way down. I guess is probably a better way of putting it. Okay, but funnier. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing is that like one of the big questions about Mallory and Irvin is like, yes, obviously they died up there. The reasons of how they died, like, there's many answers that are possible, so it's not so interesting. Many things that can kill you when you're up there. It's more like, did they actually do it before they died? Was their dis- disappearance what sort of prevented anyone from, like, successfully or attempt? Like, were there many attempts to summon it between then? You said it was, what, 23? Yeah, 24. Yeah, 20, no loads. 24 like, and 50. Most of the expeditions that we're going to talk about now are, like, in the 30s. Yeah. So there was a lot of climbing following that. And were they all attempts to summit? No, it is a mix. Some of them are like reconnaissance missions. Some are just like exploring the area. Some, as the like we move towards World War II, are to do with you know like gathering information about Tibet and Nepal and everything. And like, oh right, right, it becomes right. part of the sort of the war effort. But yeah, yeah no, and um, people were met, like really trying in earnest in the thirties to climb it. Mm-hmm. So many expeditions. We'll just go like I'll just mention a few like, of them. You'll see. Didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> They started getting really close in the early 50s 
because they were going from the Nepalese side, which is now the side that people often climb from because mm. it's a better sort of route. Mm. And they got really close a few times in the very early 50s until 53 actually happened. Mm. So I think it, like the big change is the fact that they then switched to climbing from the other side. Mm-mm-mm. Was they finally realized that they should make a better route? Well, no, throwing themselves at the mountain. They was couldn't not get working. into Nepal before that. Like it was close to foreigners. That makes prior a to lot of sense. Two. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. That 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 checks out. That yeah. checks out. So they were truly just like not allowed. <laughs> yeah. So we'll go into a little bit of etymology before we talk about the actual history of uh, mountaineering and how the Yeti comes into it. So Yeti and Abominable Snowman are of course the most common Western names. Some people claim that Yeti comes from the Sherpa term Yete, which means small man-like animal, but others think it might come from Meti, which is a Sherpa word for bear. <laughs> Some probably British person was just like, yeah, and matched them together. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> There's so many mistranslations happening all the time around the mountaineering history stuff related to it. It's just people don't write things down properly. Yeah, so having heard that it potentially means a bear which is a large animal or what was the other one it was small you know it was either bear or small man-like animal yeah yes um is the yeti supposed to be big or small i actually don't know this about yetis no i'll um talk about that in a second because there's a couple different types and sizes according to um a lot of local mythology Mm -hmm. so just to clarify for any listeners who don't know the term sherpa people often believe just means guide in the himalayas but Sherpa people are actually a specific ethnic group and they mostly live in East Nepal and Tibet. In a lot of the histories that I'm reading and stuff, people will use the term Sherpa just to refer to any guide that they have as said. So like, unfortunately, sometimes I don't know if the person I'm talking about is a Sherpa specifically or just another person who lives in Tibet slash Nepal. It could literally just be like a random Tibetan dude. And yeah. Just like, ah, oh, a Sherpa. <laughs> yeah. You never know. You yeah. never know. Exactly. They, they could very well just be like a, an Indian man and they're just like, Fully. this Sherpa <laughs> that I have. Exactly. Yeah. People, especially like people in the 20s and 30s, they're not being careful about this stuff. Mm-hmm. The term abominable snowman first appears in 1921. And that's the result of a British Mount Everest reconnaissance expedition led by a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Bury. So One of the key members on this reconnaissance expedition is actually George Mallory, who obviously uh, three years later would famously disappear on Everest. Yeah. (laughs) No. Do we like Mallory? I like Mallory. (laughs) Oh, no. Do we like Irvin? Irving? Hey, he was fine. Irvin. Uh, Irvin? Yeah, with an E at the end. Okay, cool. But no, Mallory's pretty cool. Oh, well, that's a bummer. Sorry. (laughs) We'll do it again. We'll do an episode of Mallory. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think he was pretty. He was pretty funky, actually. Um, friend of Virginia Woolf and that whole gang. Oh, that's right. You do like Mallory because yeah. he was friends with the gays. Yeah, and like almost definitely bisexual. <laughs> King getting stuck on that mountain and still up there. Wait, was he the one that was not found? He's the one that was found. They never found Irvin. Oh right, right. So he, I guess he's not up there anymore because they probably took his body down. They did not. He's oh, still up there. they left it up there. No one brings bodies back down from Everest. They're all there. Oh. I think I wrote down the exact number something somewhere, but like 300 people have died on Everest in the last like 100 years. They're just there. Now you get to know about one of the most horrifying things about Everest. People just walk over dead bodies sometimes. I can't believe they like found him. They're just like, they were like, hey, this man who's been missing for like, I don't know, 80 years or something. Cool. <laughs> I like I'm, as far as I remember, they haven't brought him down because you don't really bring back bodies from Everest. It's just really it, like, hard to. I guess like yeah, is there like easy. nothing that they want to learn from it? No, like, it's more that like physically, it's really hard it's just, to do that because yeah. they're up there in the dead zone. Yeah, looking at this body whilst they are struggling. Yeah, physically they can't carry. What are you gonna do? Dra- and like, what are you gonna drag it halfway down, leave it there while you go the rest of the way and send someone else to get it? Yeah. So, oh, could you just go and get Mallory's body? Um, we just left it on like the North Cliff. Yeah, thanks. Some of them would have been brought down depending on where they died. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, like so surely, like lower down like, the mountain, there's a lot just up like, there. oh my god, mm. I like, I think I knew this, like, I, I, I certainly knew that there were bodies up there, in, like, but I did not realize that they just like didn't bring them down, and also like, <laughs> there's that many. Yeah, I, I have the numbers specifically about Sherpas and other people who worked as um, guides and mountaineers, but it's. 118 Sherpas or local guides died on Everest between 21 and 2018. 
So that's, that's 118 that are just Sherpas. With all that said, we'll get back to the 1921 reconnaissance expedition. So Howard Bury wrote that they came across footprints at 20,000 feet, which looked rather like those of a barefooted man. He then went on to write that his porters believed the tracks to be those of, in quotes, the wild man of the snows. So Howard Bury didn't believe these stories, but his writing was then sensationalized by the press. And a journalist for the Statesman named Henry Newman interviewed the same porters after the expedition. And in his article, he wrote... I fell into conversation with some of the porters, and to my surprise and delight, another Tibetan who was present gave me a full description of the wild men, how their feet were turned backwards to enable them to climb easily, and how their hair was so long and matted that when going downhill, it fell over their eyes. When I asked him what name was applied to these men, he said Meto Kangmi. Kangmi means snowmen, and the word Meto I translated as abominable. This is a complete and total mistranslation, <laughs> <laughs> but the name stuck. What, what does it actually translate to? No idea? It, he just like made up some words and spelling is weird. It's yeah. all kinds of messiness. You just couldn't possibly. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> but also yikes that like their feet are backward. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah, some of the descriptions are something else. So I've largely used a book called Yeti and Abominable History by Graham Hoyland for this research. This book I read years ago because he's also written a book about Mallory and Irvin, and I really like his work. He actually is one of the BBC documentarians that helped them find Mallory, and it's based on his own like climbing experience and family history. So one of his, I think, great uncles was on the expedition as well. And he's Hoyland's a really cool man. I like his books. Very interesting. Hoyland did a lot of research amongst Sherpa people and other people in the region, just asking them questions about, you know, the sort of folklore and, and the beliefs around Yeti or other creatures that could be Yeti. Mm. So he's described three different types based on this on these discussions. So there's the Chute or the Thelma, which is a bipedal creature the size of a child with long arms and reddish fur. There's the Dzute a huge yak-eating creature which usually walks on all fours but can stand at 2.5 meters high on its hind legs and it shares its name with the Nepalese term for the Himalayan brown bear. So it's a bear. Like, it's kind of complicated. Like, like as in, like, they they do distinguish it uh, from to bears. themselves. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. not just like someone heard the name and they're like, oh, oh that's a yeti. Yeah, like, yeah, They'll yeah. be like, oh, it's It was like, actually, thing. there's a distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. I was fully expecting them to be like, ah, oh, yes, this is a bear. And then some white person yeah. was like, oh, it's the Yeti. Yeah. yeah, no, in this case, it's like, here's this creature that is powerful and not a bear, but also sometimes that is the word we use for bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, like, the other, the other kind of mistake definitely made a lot, but in this case, it's not. Hmm. Then there's Mete, which is the size of an adult human being and is covered in orangey-red fur. So this variant frequently appears in paintings on monastery walls in the region, and it's been said to attack people. Tibetans call the Yeti the Dramo, and Buddhist monasteries in the area often contain wall paintings or relics of the creatures, whereas in Bhutan it's called the Migoi, and the Sakteng Wildlife Sanctuary in Bhutan actually claims to be partly dedicated to it. So you walk into the Wildlife Sanctuary and it says, like, here is, I think it says here is Bigfoot specifically, not Yeti, but because they were like, yeah, American tourists. <laughs> Okay, wild. So is this like, I'm, I'm trying to think of an equivalence, like um, the Egyptians having, you know, pictures of crocodile-headed people, like they're gods on the walls. Like, is it that? Like, obviously not saying that the Yetis were gods, but mm. in, in the same way that it was like, is it believed that it's like, these were like made, fully made up things, or were they always like painted as sort of real? Does that make, yeah, am yeah, I kind yeah. of making sense? Um. Like, Very much they are considered real by people in the region, like all kinds of different people with different names for them. But a big thing we'll come across as we like sort of explore the Yeti is the Yeti and the abominable snowman is sort of this own like Western idea. This thing that people believe is a real thing to hunt for and is a, like a creature that just lives in the area, whereas... There are animals like bears in the region and there is a belief system in which or multiple belief systems in which a yeti-like figure exists and is very much like a real part of people's lives and it's very difficult to sort of distinguish 
those things from each other. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time people have done it in ways that are quite disrespectful. Mm. And there's a quote that, that I'm going to read at the end of the second episode, which is a very good way of kind of like talking about is it real or is it not real mm. when you're because we're not just talking about is it real in physical terms are we talking about is it real to people who live in the region which it is real in its own way you know yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i think the very fact that the, the all of the things you just described then involved like brown and red fur and the western idea of the abominable snowman is a big white furred like man mm. like i think that that very fact that very distinction is like sort of you know, is that is that distinction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the white fur thing is is odd because in a lot of these stories that people were being directly told by local guides and sherpas, they were being told that the yeti had or creatures that could be the yeti, whether the dremo or migoi or whatever, um, was usually orangey. But somehow the image of the Western yeti just developed into this white furred snow creature, like they- very like Tintin and Tibet kind of yeti. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, definitely even just the idea of, like, you know, bringing the idea of, like, if, the evolution of something to disguise itself in the snow mm. and being like, well, what colour fur would it have? Well, it'd be white because <laughs> snow is white. And they're like, oh, polar bears exist. Forgetting yeah. that the Himalayan brown bears are brown. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> simply. Anyway. Yeah, it's complicated. It's something we'll keep discussing as we go along, but it's it's very interesting in how it sort of intersects with what is the topic of these episodes, which is the Western development of the Yeti mm-hmm. idea and myth. Mm-hmm. We do have a handful of references to Wild Men, which is one of the early versions of, say, what we call the Yeti now, prior to the 20th century. So in his travels in Persia and down to India in the 4th century BCE, Alexander the Great heard stories about wild men of the snows, which were supposed to be man-like creatures described a bit like satyrs. And then Pliny the Elder later wrote about similar beings. So to quote, In the land of the satyrs, in the mountains that lie to the east of India, live creatures that are extremely swift, as they can run on both four feet and on two. They have bodies like men, and because of their speed can only be caught when they are ill or old. Claudius Aelianus, who was the head priest of Roman Emperor Septimus Severus, expanded on Pliny's descriptions of the same creatures, and he added that they were masters at mountain climbing, and that they repelled approaching humans by hurling stones down on them. Icons. (laughs) Good for them. The first British resident of the court of Nepal, a man named Brian Houghton Hodgson, wrote in 1832 that he had been told... (laughs) Brian. (laughs) Just... Brian. So Brian wrote in 1832 that he'd been told stories of a wild man, a tailless hairy creature which frightened local hunters. I can't help but think that the that specific account and possibly others, they were literally just describing a bear, but they were like, oh, this white guy is not going to know what a bear is. We're going to describe it another way. Honestly, sometimes- And he was like, oh my God, it's a human-like creature that's chasing them down. <laughs> they were like, no, it's a bear, man. <laughs> there are multiple stories when you're just like, I think that guy was just making fun of the like English mountain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, I think this was just them playing a little practical joke and frankly, good on them. <laughs> <laughs> they deserved that. Yeah. Not long later, in 1889, comes the first Western record of Footprints when an English explorer slash soldier slash doctor slash professor. Uh, one of those, like, Indiana trained Jones in type. everything, but yeah. probably not really good at any of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This dude, Major Lawrence Waddell, he was on an expedition in Sikkim. So the kingdom of Sikkim later became part of India. So it's now in India. That's the Indian state that's in the Himalayas. Mm. So he found a set of big footprints and he wrote that his guide said that they were the trail of the hairy wild men who were believed to live amongst the eternal snows. Waddell went on to assert that those myths were explained by bears, but that section of his quotes often went ignored during the height of Yeti mania in the next century. Okay, incredible. Yeah, a lot of quotes about the Yeti or like accounts of footprints end with whoever saw it being like, I just, I don't believe it. I think maybe it was weird snow melting or bears and then people just ignore that and carry the first bit of the, the description where they're like, I saw these footprints. <laughs> 
After the Howard Bury expedition, which I mentioned earlier, created the name Abominable Snowman, there were multiple stories published in the Western press quoting explorers who claimed to have encountered the creatures in the Himalayas. In many cases, these explorers did not exist. So truly a journalist had just picked a name from some like historical figure, slapped it on a fake quote saying, I totally saw Yeti footprints here, and then published it. You know, like sidetrack, but like truly journalists used to just make up. (laughs) The amount of like stuff that I've been reading in relation to like all of this like all of the th- episodes that we've done, like I, I, I'm, I'm constantly finding things where it's just like, yeah, they just like no one could substantiate this, and they just could be like, my sources are secret, or they could just make up sources, and yeah. no one could be like, hey, that's not a guy, <laughs> like, oh, just like the man in Medan, yeah, yeah, literally. they just made up a ship. They yeah. were just like, yeah, this ship sunk, and everyone was like, yeah, it checks out, yeah, it sounds real. <laughs> and then everyone that did checking was like, this isn't, this ship doesn't exist, and they're like, but it sunk. <laughs> like so literally much of this that is like that it's just like like god wow <laughs> we, we, we we're constantly talking about how journalism has like gone down in recent years which like i don't believe is true actually i think there yeah. is more of it not that it's bad but like truly no also they like journalists some journalists will always be garbage <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and some people will be trying very hard to do good work around that at all times yeah but just people people be making stuff up. Yeah. Just for fun. For, 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 it wasn't for clicks. It was for pennies. It was to sell some of those papers. In 1925, there's the first supposedly verifiable sighting, and that's by a photographer named N.A. Tambazi during a British geological expedition. Tambazi's description of an unclothed human-like figure showing up dark against the snow sounds much like most later yeti sightings although he didn't believe the legend himself so again a guy who's like huh i saw this figure but i don't believe in yetis could have just been like any naked guy yeah dude with a lot of hair of them (laughs) but everyone's like oh my god proof (laughs) verifiable sighting because it's from a western person yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that's pretty much it isn't it yeah we're going to ignore all of the art on these ancient temples and monasteries for this one made-up <laughs> quote <laughs> by a fake explorer yeah. published in a Western newspaper. Literally that. We come to one key source of Yeti lore now, coming from an English mountaineer and botanist named Frank Smythe, who dedicated a whole chapter to the idea of a abominable snowman in his 1937 book, The Valley of the Flowers. So being a botanist, his book's about like a place where he found a lot of cool flowers, which that is, is nice for him. That is a sick name. Oh, it's great, isn't That's it? It's a great name. <laughs> he approached the Yeti very scientifically. So while he was exploring this valley in northern India, his party came across a huge human-like footprint. And according to his book, his porters warned him that they were the tracks of a snowman, but he argued that it must be a bear and convinced them to help him follow the prints. Smythe noted that whatever had made the tracks through such a difficult area had done so in a masterly way, joking that the snowman was well qualified for membership of the Himalayan club. They followed the tracks for a little while and then returned and followed them in the other direction, so the direction that the tracks were actually heading, which Mm. he said worried the porters, so he started to go alone. Once he got further along the track, a mist surrounded him, preventing him from seeing his party where he had left them. The footprints led to the mouth of a cave. Now a little bit spooked, and he's admitted that in his in his book, Smythe threw a rock into the cave before being brave enough to actually approach it. Inside he found nothing, and the tracks disappeared among the rocks. He waited a little while for the fog to clear before returning to his party. He had taken photos and measurements of the prints, and later he sent those to zoologists for examining, and they determined that it was a bear, and that the bipedal nature of the tracks was because the bear's back paws would step into the prints of its front paws as it walked, which, according to them, is a common thing. I don't know if that was legit, because these are 1930s zoologists. Yeah, I don't trust anything they say, (laughs) but I appreciate that they were trying. Yeah, they were trying. And he wrote all of this down in his book, so including some of the folklore that he used to explain how the myth developed. But it had little impact on actually setting the Yeti myth to rest. Like, he was very much like, I think this is not real. And then everyone, he was very, like, 
as yeah. I said, scientific about it. Yeah. But everyone was like, um, actually. <laughs> I don't know what bear tracks look like. I would, I'm probably going to Google that soon. But did they look like human tracks? I feel like. So, no. Yeah, yeah, that's my like. <laughs> yeah, you got like claws on a bear. Yeah, they're, everyone they're being like, "Oh no, they're just bear tracks." But it's like, I don't know. I just feel like bears probably have more of a poor situation, and our feet are very long. Um, bear tracks are longer than um, like say dogs or something. They are they are kind of long looking, mm. but a little bit say spikier with their toes. But a lot of the time, we're dealing with tracks that have been made hours and hours before in snow. Yeah, so things melt. And what's going to happen is they'll met, melt around it to widen tracks and to round them off because uh, of just how it melts, yeah. how it snow melts. So they'll actually look more rounded and human-like. Yeah, yeah. And big, just bigger. Yeah. Okay, that's super interesting. Yeah. 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 So everyone basically saw these five-hour-old bear tracks and they were like, oh, it's human. <laughs> Even older than that, like days possibly depending on how cold it is yeah. and they're just like oh my god giant ape-like creature mm. <laughs> or creature walking backwards which sometimes is maybe just they're going different directions yeah things like a hard thing to kind of determine the backwards feed thing it freaks you out doesn't it it freaks me out a lot and i also don't know how it would help you climb you're going up your feet grip backwards because, like, I when you're going it. down a hill, you walk with your feet. Yeah. Up. No, sorry, when you're going up a hill, sometimes you walk up, like, backwards if it's really steep because it's your feet grip forward better. Uh, I, I hate that visual. <laughs> <laughs> now we come to a fellow named Ernst Schaefer. So Schaefer was a German explorer and zoologist who specialized in ornithology, particularly the study of birds in Tibet. Born in 1910, by the age of 28, he had already been on two American-run expeditions in Tibet and China, which had made him famous and provided the basis for his PhD. Oh, interesting. Dr. Ernst Schaefer. Yes, Mr. Ornithology Boy. Mm -hmm. So instead of using his American connections to move and work there, Mr. Ornithology Boy joins the Nazi party to advance his career. Okay, garbage, Dr. Schaefer. Yeah. So he does that several years prior to his 1938 expedition. So that's when he's he's 28 in 1938. So this is the expedition we're talking about. But he was already a Nazi, like, I think in 1933 or earlier. Okay, so he very much joined the Nazis when it wasn't compulsory. Yeah, yeah. There's a choice he made. So prior to the 1938 expedition to Tibet, Schaefer had, air quotes, accidentally shot and killed his wife during a duck hunting accident. Oh my god, he murdered his wife? Yes. This guy is shady as all hell. And people are just like, oh yeah, um, hunting is, is d- difficult. But like, he killed his wife? Yeah. Oh, he 100% meant to do that. Yeah. There was no mistake made. No, this guy, just, trust this dude. This guy just, killed, just killed his wife. Um, it's about to get so much worse. So this 1938 expedition is led by Schaefer and was backed by Heinrich Himmler and the SS. Oh, my God. Particularly the Arnenerb think tank, which was dedicated to the idea that Germans were descended from the so-called Aryan master race. Oh, wait, did they sponsor him to go and, like, find one of their, like, fake, you know, occulty... Literally, yes. Aryan ruin or whatever that they had this yes. idea of? Yeah. Yes, this is exactly what was going on here. Oh, my God. So among his companions was Bruno Berger, an anthropologist who would go on to commit many atrocities in the pursuit of Nazi racial science during the Holocaust, while the expedition photographer would go on to film horrific experiments on prisoners at Dachau. So he's truly, like, he's not just regular old, I'm taking money from the Nazis to get my science done. He is surrounded with by some of the most despicable people who were involved in the Holocaust and was being personally funded by... The, Just the worst brains people. behind the Holocaust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I hate all of this as yeah. much as you would expect. Yeah. So Ananurb translates to ancestral heritage, and thus the expedition's key goal was the search for proof that the Aryan race originated in Tibet or had historically conquered Asia. Himmler was so entrenched in Nordic mythology that he even told scientists to search for Thor's hammer, which he considered an ancient weapon. It's, you know what, it's like 
truly people will believe anything. People will just believe that. Mm-hmm. Did they like, I mean, to be clear, I know that like, there's just a lot going on there. Did they believe, I mean, obviously they sort of had this idea that like the Aryans came from like either the Himalayan region or like had conquered it at some point, right? I mean, obviously they have no concept of evolution or anything. Because, like, what did they think of the people who were living in the region? Were they just like, oh, they moved in after? So, um, like, this is one of several potential origin points that they're researching at the time. So Himmler's sending off, like, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, like, maybe seven or so different expeditions around the world to pursue different points where they thought maybe the Aryan race began. Yeah. I mean, they believed that there was, like, a secret city in Antarctica. Like, they... Oh, all kinds just, like, of... like, were cr- on crack. Wild stuff. So the Yeti actually comes into this because it became tied up in this Nazi belief that some lost Aryan tribe was living in Tibet. One of the things that I'm, like, struggling with this particular section is that I can't just laugh at them and I can't just call them stupid and say they have no brain cells because they did have brain cells and they put those brain cells towards murdering people. Yeah. Like, you ca- like it's so hard to just be like, oh God, weren't they just so dumb? Because it's like, well, yes, but they weren't dumb as well because the same people that were doing this were also it, like literally murdering millions and millions and millions of innocent people at the same time. Yeah. And it's just like, how do you like, that's just so hard to reconcile. Because yeah, I just want to call them stupid and move on, but like, you can't. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Like, I think it's important though as well. Like, because it's so easy to just be like, well, aren't they so stupid? Isn't it so stupid? You know, mm. like, it's easy to call something dumb. It's much harder to acknowledge that, yeah, people put their brain power towards evil things and also believe just the stupidest <laughs> you've ever heard. Just like simultaneously. Yeah, just like simultaneously they can they can come up with ways of murdering people that you don't even want to think about and also yeah. believe that yetis exist and that they're Aryan. <laughs> like, yeah. It should be said of this expedition, there were some more, air quotes, practical goals. So there was sure. this aim to collect, and, and they did successfully collect, large numbers of seeds and grains, which the Nazis then hoped to develop into like better food for their occupied areas in Eastern Europe. And they were also trying to make trouble for the British in India through guerrilla attacks or just sort of scoping out the area. Schaefer himself did not believe in the Yeti, and he actually he faked footprints in the snow outside of the tents of his local porters after they told him about the creature. Okay, well, like literally just to scare them? Yeah, which just comes off as cruel. Oh yeah, this guy was evil. Yeah, it's awful. Like not only did he murder his wife, but he was a Nazi. Yeah, and his porters, people who were hired by him to take him through dangerous areas, told like they told him about these things that they feared and believed in, and he was like, haha, I'm going to freak him out by putting some footprints in front of their tents when they wake up. God, what a trash human being. Just awful person. He wrote about an instance where he insisted that his porters take him to a Yeti den, and when they arrived at a cave, he shot at the creature that they had led him to, and it turned out to be a bear. Yeah, of course it did. Upon return to Germany, the expedition was lauded, and Himmler actually met their plane on the tarmac to award Schaefer personally. Obviously, they didn't find any Yeti proof, and instead they did all this terrible stuff, and a lot of really bad people were given money and they, and they also didn't find any proof of any Aryans in the area because not only are Aryans not real, but they wouldn't have been in the area. Yeah. Schaefer would later say that his work for the Nazis was his biggest mistake and that he only did it for his career. But let's remember that he colluded with them for years and he was a member of the think tank by choice. Was he a Nazi like all the way through to the end of the war? Into, yeah, the end of the war and then afterwards he was interned for several years, but was then exonerated for war crimes, after which he moved to Venezuela and worked in academia, before then moving back to Europe and working for the King of Belgium and then later as a museum curator till his death. He later returned to the Yeti story towards the end of the 20th century in the works of an Italian mountaineer named Reinhold Messner, who's someone we'll actually come back to at the very end of this, at the very end of episode two. So Messner published a letter that Schaefer had written him many years ago in which Schaefer accused a man named Eric Shipton of faking Yeti footprints and then of personally begging Schaefer not to publish his belief that the Yeti was a bear. This was on the basis that Shipton relied on the Yeti phenomenon in the press to get funding for his next Everest expedition. 
So Shipton is a man that we will come back to as well. He's a British mountaineer. Regardless of his accuracy, it's incredibly hypocritical as an accusation coming from a man who literally worked for like an insane Nazi racial science organization just to pursue his own research. Like for him to say, this person made uh, told me not to talk about Yetis being bears because he wants money for his expedition. It's like, I'm sorry, why are you on your expedition? Yeah, you literally took money from Nazis. You yeah. literally are a Nazi. Yeah. God, this man is such garbage. Absolute garbage. So I'll give one last Yeti sighting slash expedition before we finish this episode. But a lot of the people I've mentioned previously, as I said, Messner and Shipton and everyone will come back in episode two. So I'll jog people's memories at the start of the next one. But for now, we'll end this with a sighting from World War II. The quote goes, For two hours we watched them. They were enormous and they walked on their hind legs. Their faces I could not see in detail, but the heads were squarish and the ears might lie close to the skull because there was no projection from the silhouette against the snow. The shoulders sloped sharply downwards to a powerful chest and long arms, the wrists of which extended to the knees. The nearest I could get to deciding their colour is a rusty camel. They were covered with long, loose, straight hair. They were doing nothing but moving around slowly together, and occasionally just standing and looking about them, like people admiring the view. So these quotes come from the book The Long Walk by Sławomir Rawitz, a Polish army lieutenant who spent time as a prisoner of war in Siberia in World War II. In Rawitz's book, which was ghostwritten, he claims to have escaped a Siberian gulag in 1941 and walked through Central Asia, Tibet, and the Himalayas until reaching British India. Um, I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> so I was wondering if maybe this uh, jogged your memory, because this is like a very famous story. It was a best-selling book back in 1956. It became a major film called The Way Back by Peter Weir, who's the director I really like. Mm. Um, the film was in 2010. But... People have obviously, <laughs> as you kind of inferred, they've disputed whether Rawitz's story is even true. And the Soviet documents show that he may have been released and taken to a refugee camp in Iran. So, like, it's <laughs> it's extremely debatable and almost definitely not real. Based purely on, like, anecdotal evidence for myself. But, like, you don't just wander through the Himalayas. <laughs> like, do <laughs> well, like, the book is, like, it's an extremely harrowing journey and it goes for, like... A year. And oh, like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't doubt it. But, like, at the same time, it was definitely all fake. <laughs> yeah. It's The hard bit is the crossing through Central Asia, I think. Like, that's the really, like, tough bit. Because you're going from Siberia down to South Asia. It's just, like, you're in famously inhospitable, dangerous territory in wartime. Mm -hmm. Like, and what? No. No, yeah. you, you did not. So some people have claimed that the story was actually about them. Like various individuals have come forward, but none of those have been confirmed. <laughs> okay. Okay. Icons for being like, okay, everyone's saying this story is not real about this guy. So what if? It's <laughs> like, no. so I'm, I was in the war and I'm old and would like some kudos. Actually, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> Among those who've vocally disputed the book since it came out in the 50s were Peter Fleming, the brother of Bond author Ian Fleming. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, English mountaineer Eric Shipton, who I mentioned briefly earlier and who we'll come to in the next episode. Okay. You know what, Shipton? I don't know what you did because I don't know anything about you yet, but you're correct on this. Here is a teaser. Shipton brought the most famous and most iconic evidence of the Yeti to the world. Oh, like the photo. The photo. Of like the dude. The, the, no, no, that's, you're thinking no, no, of Bigfoot the, one. I'm thinking of Bigfoot. The, the footprint yeah. with the ice axe next to it. Yes. That's Shipton. Yeah. He is an interesting person. We will come up to him hmm. in, in two weeks' time. I'm kind of, I kind of want to know more about man who faked his journey across, well, didn't even I fake, know. just like a rotor so fake journey across. He didn't even write, it was ghostwritten. It, it was ghostwritten. Like, he was like an old man in Britain by this point. And he just told this story to someone and they wrote a book. Like, the annoying thing, the movie's like a banger. It's a good movie. It's by my favorite director. <laughs> like, it makes me mad. Does does the movie, like, imply that, or like, at least, I don't know, does does it give any nod to it not being real? Or are they, like, based on the true events? Mm, they say inspired by real events. Uh, so it's a very different, it's already very different to the actual book. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's... it's 
but they're like definitely kind of being like, oh, we're leaning towards believing this. Otherwise, we wouldn't make a movie about it. Yeah. But also, it's like it's, it's cool if it's a banger of a story, but like it's definitely fake. It's a cool story, yeah. And like you know, I don't think it's like physically impossible. It's just rough. It's really. Tough. I mean, I kind of like. I mean, like obviously, impossible is a strong word, but like highly improbable in the very <laughs> least. Yes, but like, like people can make like extreme journeys and stuff. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, yeah just like. <laughs> oh there's just, there's just like a lot of like wild improbable journeys that you hear about you're like wow that must have been really tough and then this one is the first it's probably one of the first ones that i've ever been like no like yeah, absolutely no, you did not happen. do that like nope. you did not walk through famously some of the most inhospitable territory on the planet uh, seemingly what is it alone like <laughs> in a group actually oh in a group yeah e- even less believable yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think all of them made it, yeah. but like the I, story goes, like four or five of them, I think. I can't remember. You know what? You know what? Why it's not believable? They would have been killed by yetis. They would have been eaten. I mean, he he literally thinks he saw yetis. That's my favorite thing of this book. He's like, "How will this sell? I'm gonna put a yeti sighting in it." Like the Ghost Rider just did that. Yeah, and he was right. Yeah, it made it more. It made it more fun. I enjoyed that. It's the only reason I would read this book is just to read that scene over and over again. And I don't think they put it in the movie from memory. Oh, disgusting. I know. It's actually really sad. Unacceptable. So more on the Yeti to come in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening to the Mayday Podcast. If you'd like to see some fun fake Yeti footprints, follow us on Instagram at the Mayday Pod. Thanks, as always, to our composer and producer, Marlon, who you can find at his website, marlongrunden.com. What a legend. Absolute king. Killing it. Ranking, Marlon Grundon, Yeti. Yeah, you know what? I think that's a fair ranking. Marlon is pretty freaking incredible. I do love the Yeti. He's very close to my heart, but Marlon is just a little bit higher. higher. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for me, it's a lot bit higher, but maybe you can convince me otherwise next episode. I just, the Yeti. Close that gap. Whether he real or not, or what we consider real within our knowledge systems. He's just cool. Big furry dude. I love him. I don't feel the same. I'm sorry. Not because he couldn't be very cool, but because, like, all of the descriptions you give me so far have just been so thoroughly horrifying. <laughs> You're just like, oh, he has backwards feet. I hate him. Yes. Literally that. <laughs> the backwards feet thing's really getting to me, actually. <laughs> anyway, tune in next episode to hear about more backwards feet. We have been the Mayday Podcast. Thank you and good night.